Hi, everyone. Thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with James Leonard. Uh, really, really super cool dude. Uh, James was on the Tommy Tiernan show in January, and I think he really stole the show that night. Really inspirational, incredible story. Uh, so speaking to James today about his life um, so far, uh, in a lot more depth uh, and uh, hopefully even though me and James were slightly caught for a little bit of time when we were doing this uh, I would really like to think we caught the real essence of his story so far and I, I would like to think that it's a, a very inspirational story for so many people that it can show you that uh, we often want to think and perceive that life should go in a very specific way and people's paths in life should be very very specific but um, I think from James's story, we can see that there's many, many ways that we can arrive at a destination in life where we're achieving great, great things. And I think James's story has that in abundance. I really, really hope you enjoy it. For those of you who don't know, James and Timmy Long, uh, they do a podcast every week. It's known as the Two Naris, a fantastic podcast. Um, it's all about social issues, mental health issues and addiction issues. And um, it's a super, super podcast, massive views. Um, so check that out uh, for those of you that haven't listened to the podcast or it's on YouTube as well. So you can watch the podcast and uh, really hope you enjoy the story. Um, and thank you very much for, for listening or watching. Thank you. super excited to speak with James now for quite a while. Um, James, thanks for coming on, buddy. Really nice to have you. And I know you're really, really busy and you were kind of under pressure even to get on for me today. So thanks a million. I really do appreciate it. Uh, so for people that don't know James, uh, James's story is definitely one of a lot of hope and inspiration. Uh, I think especially the times we're in and the difficulties that we're in, uh, I think James's story is so, so positive for so many people out there. Um, so many people's path is, isn't straightforward in life. And uh, I think James, uh, we've just briefly touched on it. James has been in addiction, I suppose, uh, until he got into recovery for a majority of his life. Um, James has spent time in and out of prison and he's been homeless and a full 360 to now being accepted for a PhD in UCC. And a little birdie told me, James, actually, that... Um, you did so well in your master's that they would have thrown a PhD at you. <laughs> uh, and that's someone that's well in the know. Uh, James, thanks a million for coming on, buddy. Uh, thanks so, a million for having us. Uh, it's a pleasure, pleasure. Um, uh, maybe we could start, James, with, uh, and you can kind of lead into that yourself, uh, growing up in Aaron Cullen, um, and I know you moved to Nakhnihini first, so, and what that was like for you as a, as a young person. Yeah, well, I was born in Dublin, and when I was a baby, we moved to uh, Knocknahini in 1986. I was born in 85, we moved there in 86. Um, Knocknahini in, in the mid to late 80s was mad, um, and through the 90s, around 1990, then we moved to Holly Hill, Ard Cullen, which is just a couple of hundred metres down the road. It's the same area, really. But we'd be closer to Apple Computers, European headquarters would be at the back of us, you know. But the the contrast between the billions of Apple and the not so much money in my home area would have been wide, you know. Um, but at the same time, I loved growing up there, um, even though I know there was a lot of social issues there, a lot of antisocial behaviour. Um, 
joyriding and drugs and addiction, mental health issues, stuff like that. Um, when you're from there, that's all you know. So, you know, I'm still living up here on the north side now. And yeah, I, I, I don't see anything wrong with it today, you know what I mean? But I suppose it's only, it's only later in life when I started looking back, um, especially when we were going through education and I learned that not all neighbourhoods has all those issues that I have, you know, and um, even when I started going into prison and I seen a lot of the people in there from my area um, and not so many people from other areas, that gets you thinking, like, you're not, we're not all born bad in one area and all born good in another area. There's other circumstances and variables at play that lead a certain group into prison and another group not into prison in terms of resources, finances and stuff like that, you know. So, um, yeah, from a working class area, very proud to be from there, still up there. Um, um, I suppose we grew up in the 90s there where there would have been high levels of unemployment and a uh, high percentage of lone parent families. Um, there would have been a lot of drug use, as I said. And for some reason, we looked up, me and my peers, now when I say me and my friends, we looked up to the negativity, um, the gyrators, the drug dealers, that's kind of was our role models, you know. Now, it has to be said too, that most, young, most people in that area don't get involved in drugs or criminality, you know. But there's a significant amount do, and I was part of that significant amount. So with that, you know, I was in primary school in Nakhnehini, um, and I enjoyed primary school. I went to secondary school then in Northman, which is a famous school here in Corkman Fairhill. Um, Terence McSweeney and Tomas McCartan and Sean O'Gallapine and all these people yeah, yeah, went to the man. Yeah. I hated it, you know, and I didn't get on well there at all. It was a Christian brother school. It was really strict. It was all boys. No soccer on Leeds, yeah, and I just didn't like it. And around that time as well, my dad was after going to prison. There was a lot of trouble at home. I was changing, becoming a boy, from a boy, coming into a man. There was a lot going on, and I just got into a lot of trouble in school. No, I didn't want to be there. And I think with high insight now, probably my mother would have taken me out of school at that stage and put me into another school or letting me just do a trade or something. But she was adamant that... All her kids got at least to leave and such, you know. So, um, yeah. And uh, I suppose that transition, obviously, then from primary to, to secondary school was very, very challenging. And was it around that time that your dad had gone to prison or kind of were you still in primary school? Or? Yeah, exactly. Just when I was in sixth year, sixth class, I mean, going into first year, it was around that time as well. And um, yeah, making the transition into school. Well, it's not easy at the best of times. Yeah. Around that time as well, obviously you've been hurt and stuff like that, and you know that had a big impact on the family. You're missing but, your uh, dad, dad as well, of course. Like, and... of course, exactly, exactly. And then in the school, it was not very understanding around anything like that, you know. And there was no support for place for me or my family uh, to deal with any of that. And there was no um, questions asked as to why why I was misbehaving, why I was finding so hard to concentrate and do well in school, even though I was obviously very bright. You know, it was not nurtured in me at all, and there would have been labels thrown at me by teachers and scumbag and tug and all very bad reports and all these things. You know, so it was just all negative. All negative stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was was there ever kind of any support from teachers at the time, or you know, was that the experience that it was really negative, like you know? No, no support whatsoever in the man. I can't 
I couldn't think of one teacher I had that tried to offer me help or guidance or support or give me the time of day. And I'm not like if if there was a teacher, I would give them the, the credit in the world in my lifetime I've come across primary school teachers, mm. university lecturers, guardy, prison officers that have been nice to me and I could easily say, Yeah, do you know what and all like that. But in that school it was just a bad experience from start to finish. Yeah, it's very hard as a young person and you're struggling and you know, you're missing your dad and you're just trying to figure out becoming a, a young adult and uh you know, when we're spoken to and talked to like that, it's, it's extremely challenging. Um, yeah. when, when did kind of drugs maybe kind of come on the scene for you, James? I think I was tailor-made for an addiction with all that was going on. <laughs> there, you know, it was like, yeah. I was a volatile young man um, and I was very hurt and angry and stuff like that. And when you add drugs into that mix, it's always going to end in a disaster, you know, because the drugs just helped quell all that. Um, negative internal emotions, you know. So any, I suppose as I got a little bit mature in my teens as well, I became insecure and I became um, shy and withdrawn, um, you know, lacking confidence and self-esteem, poor self-image, you know, I just, it was just all negative, you know, and I just became, uh, when I started drinking, taking drugs, then when I was about 15 or 16, you know, just drinking and smoking hash on the weekends type of thing, you know. Yeah. Um, kind of uh, that was it. But once I started, I knew like that, uh, especially when I started taking ecstasy in my late teens. I knew then like that this is what I should be doing. You know, it just felt so right. Just, you know, took away all that shit I was feeling and made me feel love and warmth and belonging and connection with my peers and all, all that, you know. So um, that was really it. It didn't really matter what the substance was after that. You know, it was always about blocking out what I was feeling inside and it was different drugs down through the years you know? and I, I think a lot of people you know maybe that haven't experienced addiction or maybe haven't had a family member addiction they, they struggle sometimes to understand that like you know um, but like for you as a young person I, I think it's so common for so many young people often that kind of insecurity and shyness or even anxiety you know you find something whether it's alcohol or whether it's drugs and it brings you out of that and uh you know even finding that social group where you feel that sense of connection even at some level if it's unhealthy it's it's still connection isn't it and it's positive and yeah exactly and i think as well around around when i was coming into my late teens then around 18 or 19, my mental health would have been very poor at that stage, you know, and uh, there would have been suicidal ideation and self-harm and stuff like that. And, uh, but it was around that time as well, I started getting addicted to benzodiazepines. Now, an addiction to benzodiazepines is not good, is never good, let me just say that. But I think there was, an, there was a part that that saved me as well, because even though I was zonked out of my head and I was getting into a lot of trouble because when I was taking benzos and drinking alcohol, my behaviour was very erratic, you know, and we would have been um, a lot of antisocial behaviour and joyriding and fighting and stuff like that, you know, um, public order offences. But the tablets blocked out everything, you know, everything, and I, it stopped me from, you know, to stop the self-harm and the suicidal ideation and the thoughts of what, the feelings of wanting to kill myself, you know, it helped me get through that stage, you know, mm-hmm. even though I was going in and out of prison at that stage, and I was zonked out of my head and it was causing a lot of harm for me. Um, 
there was no, I wasn't wanting to kill myself, you know. So it was a self medication, and that's why I always looked at the drugs that I took. It was a self medication all the time to help me deal with what I couldn't deal with or help me cope. It was like a poor coping skills, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's, it's almost trying to escape, isn't it, from those uncomfortable feelings we can't sit with, and yeah. it's that kind of becoming a different, distorted version of yourself. I think, as Gabriel Matty kind of says it well. Um, can, can you can you remember your your first time, kind of that recall of your first time going to prison, and what would that experience was like for you? Yeah, the first time I went in, I was afraid of my life because it was only a scrawny eighteen year old, and you know. Um, you know, when you're going into prison for the first time, you have an idea in your head of what it's like. And um, so I was afraid and I was anxious and all that. But then there was a part of me who was excited um, because I was going into prison, you know what I mean? And it was like something that we looked up to when we were young. Yeah, can you explain that for people? Because, uh, you know, again, I don't have a good understanding of, of that in relation to clients that we work with and stuff. But... Uh, what is that, you know, sometimes of that kind of experience of going to prison? It's kind of a coming of age for, uh, in a sense. Yeah, well, it's like this, like if your dad is a mechanic, isn't that the most natural thing in the world to want to be a mechanic? And if your dad is a postman or a prison officer or a captain or a teacher or whatever, it's the most natural thing in the world to follow that, you know, or, or your big brother or your uncle, you know? And that's the same thing, really. Like, you know, it was the people, in, because of my dad was in there, I thought, you know, it'd be cool. No, if I went in there, you know, and my friends was in there, their older brothers and their dads, and, you know, there's so many people in the area older than me that we looked up to that was in there. So it was like, you know, you're becoming a man now. You're after being in coppers and you're a man. You know, there was that element to it. So then when you get out then, you know, you have, when you're a young fella like that, it's bravado as well. Um machismo and stuff like that and you'll get out and telling your friends about you know it's all that you know it gives you all the street cred i suppose when you're a young punk like that you know and you're immature um and a very kind of a warped sense of you know what a man is you know masculinity and stuff like that you know so that's kind of what it is very hard for people to understand like when you're not from an area or a culture like that you know it's it's a very it's a very warped sense of reality or masculinity as i said and it really kind of continues the cycle, though, doesn't it? Like it, it, it feeds it in a way that that kind of negative mindset of maybe what we feed into believing uh, is our life and is is right for us. And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's, um, it's, sorry, as well when you're when you're going as a young person like that as a, an eighteen-year-old, that fear is there, right? But then once you go in there and you realise actually. There's nothing to be afraid of, you know, and there's so many people from my neighborhood in this place and so many people like me in this place. Once that fear is gone, prison is never a deterrent after that, you know, and going into prison then is just like an occupational hazard for somebody that's using drugs like that, you know, it's just something that you have to endure every now and then. And I, I still work with people today in addiction, but and, and I'd find sometimes that people are going to prison, they're actually kind of looking forward to it. And uh, not even in a negative context, but if they are, you know, in chaotic addiction, it's often a place where they find it's it's a reprieve from that and they can kind of get away from the chaos. And was that yeah. some of your experience of it? Uh, yeah, definitely. Especially when I started using heroin, um, I think prison was like respite for me. It helped you regenerate your body. Um, 
and just give you a break because heroin addiction is it's a harsh thing to endure uh, it's very taxing on the body um and it's very isolating uh, emotionally from your friends family and partners and stuff like that so to go into prison then and to have connections back with your family even if it is through a phone call or the odd visit um, and to be able to go to the school and go to the gym um, have a social circle in there play cards um, all they go to the gym go to the school these things that I didn't have on the outside I had on the inside you know and sometimes I felt probably freer with more options within the confines of the four walls in there than I did on the outside with this freedom because when I was free I was, wasn't really free I was bound to a chemist and to a drug dealer and to a door office and to a, pot, a GP you know so I was very limited you know so yeah prison was not something that was a deterrent for me and it was something that probably saved me at times too you know where I would go to court in such a bad condition and the judge would give me six eight months nine months four months whatever it was um probably out of mercy but it's just just to show as well like it's a it's a bad indictment on society when you know somebody that's obviously very sick in that stage of their life that there's no other option really than put somebody into prison and even one of the prison officers used to say to me, like, you shouldn't be in here at all, James. Do you know, you, do you know, like, you're in and out here the whole time, but it's not working for you. You're not committing any crimes other than must to get the drugs or getting caught with drugs. Mm-hmm. And it's true, like, do you know, maybe treatment, if treatment was offered, they could have gotten it a lot sooner, do you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but hopefully things are changing. Yeah, please God, yeah. Um, it, it kind of offers you the security sometimes and uh, the structure that you need that you just don't have or you can't find uh, outside of prison sometimes, yeah. Exactly, and the structure is important as well. And when I went to St. Francis Farm, eventually treatment centre in Tolo, County Carlo, um, I think the structure there played a big part in me regaining some of that self-confidence and self-esteem and self-worth you know and giving me you know something a purpose in life to get up to during the day and over the walk and do some groups and you know just do some art and whatever it was you know just mm. every day we got up we walked on the farm and we did other other kind of stuff as well you know at the end of the day it would feel like you know you're after doing the day's work and it just builds your confidence you know and it, it helps you to see the good in yourself you know because when you're when you're a drug addict like that, like you just feel like you feel like you feel like shit, you know. Um, and I pardon my language, like but you just feel like worthless. And I think it's a, it's a treatment center like that. It gives you back your self worth. Yeah, and like, and had you been in, in uh, treatment previous to that, maybe a couple of times, and I I, I think you were, but it, you know, sometimes coming out, it, it's the kind of guilt and the shame uh, attached to maybe the past and what what has happened and you know things you've done mm. like was that something that kind of contributed maybe to to relapse and the difficulty sometimes that treatment can be fantastic but actually coming out of treatment is often a really challenging process for people like you know okay can you talk a little bit about yeah that? but any, yeah and anybody at all can get sober anybody can get sober it's maintaining it is the hard thing you know like anybody it's easy to it's easy to stay sober in a treatment centre or in a prison, you know, it's when you get out into the real world, that's when, that's where you've done most of your using, that's where you picked up, picked up all the issues as to why you're using in the first place, you know. 
So even with the best of intentions, working with treatment centres and key workers and charities and stuff like that, when I got out of prison or got out of the treatment centre, was always a relapse on the day. Um, because when you get out of them facilities, the reality of it hits. The reality of the identity you have, James Leonard, the junkie, scumbag, prisoner, drug addict, these are the, the kind of things you're telling yourself. Who you gonna who you gonna go out to know? You know, um, what are you gonna do? Move over, move out of your go go where? Who's gonna give you a job? Who's gonna give you a gaff? You know, after, you know these things start creeping into you, and then you start thinking about the things you're after doing in addiction and the shame and guilt and all these things. And then the fear, the fear is what really drives me, drove me back to drugs all the time. It was just a constant fear in my stomach and an anxiety. Um, just about like, it's hard to describe, you know, but as soon as you get out of the prison or as soon as you get out of the treatment, all them reasons why you were using benzos and heroin in the first place just come flooding back and overwhelming. And the, the task ahead of you change your whole life, your whole personality, your whole identity and moving to the unknown is just overwhelming and it's very easy to look for the quick fix and the drug which eases everything because when you're stoned, as bad as it is, you just don't care because you're just so numb. It's just escape the pain. Um, what, what was different for you, do you think? Or had you just, you know, when you, when you went to the farm and uh, uh, you know, Francis farm for people that wouldn't know what, what it is. Uh, when you went to the farm this time and uh, you'd, you'd done your detox and you moved into the house then to do your residential piece, uh, what was different, do you feel, this time around for you? That, uh... I think uh, St. Francis farm was by far the best treatment I've ever done because uh, it was about, all in all, it was about six months. There was six, there was eight weeks in the detox. I was detoxing from methadone and Valium. And then there was about 16, 17, 16 or 17 weeks in the residential side of it. But I needed that, you know, I had a lifetime full of negative core beliefs and negative negative perceptions and that I had to work through, you know. I had very self-limiting beliefs about who I was, what a man is, what I could be, you know, all these things, you know, very irrational. Um, I had to work through all those. Um, also, I think maturity played a part. You know, I was 27, going on 28 no spring chicken I'd been through the mill at that stage you know I, I was after going through I was after taking all the drugs and I was after exhausting all the different ways and means of using um, like I, 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 I'd kid myself into thinking I won't inject I'll smoke I won't take this tablet I'll take that tablet I won't drink shorts I'll drink beer I'll just smoke hash it didn't matter what it was you know always ended in the same place for me and I had to go through those stages to come to the realisation that I had to surrender, that I was an addict, and that no matter what I used, it was going to end in a disaster for me. So it, it took me to the age of 27 to come to that realization, you know. Also, um, when I was getting out, I got a, I was put into a house planted assignment, which was a recovery house, you know, it was just a normal, mm. it was a four bedroom house in the south side in Wilton here in Cork City. Um, and it was for people that was in early recovery like me, and I had a key worker, and I think that was probably very, uh, that was instrumental really because I was kind of minded for the first 12 months. Um, also, another, like, see, there's loads of reasons why. But another one then would be when I tried to get sober the last few times, I'd never went to NA or AA, you know. I'd never even heard of the, the term recovery. I'd never heard of the term recovery until this time, you know. 
you were going at low yeah, like uh, yeah. I always felt like you know once you're not drinking and taking drugs, that's recovery. It's actually not. It's it's not recovery. Is way more than putting down the drink and the drug. And once I got once I started to learn that and understand that, then I was going to NA meetings every day of the week. You know, um, and I started doing my twelve steps. I was doing counselling, psychotherapy. When I got out of treatment, no, all this I was doing aftercare, um, and I just. I knew like that it was more about putting down the drink and the drug. And I've learned like that my problem was never the drug problem. It was, it was, you know, the drugs was just the manifestation, the physical manifestation of the deep rooted problem, which was my poor coping skills and negative core beliefs and self-esteem and confidence. And once I was able to address all them, you could put the drugs in front of me. You now when I've worked in homeless services and addiction services where people would be using in front of me or I'm dispensing Valium to people, um, and I'm not tempted at all because why? Because I've addressed all these other issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a really good point. I think you know, it, it, there's always something underneath that's driving it in, in, in the first place. Like, uh, yeah. do you mind, James? Uh, like, you, you've been homeless uh, a few times, and you know, for different periods of your life, and can you maybe talk a little bit about that and what that life was like for you and how difficult that might have been for you? Yeah. I it's very. Uh, it doesn't not. It doesn't do anything for your confidence and your self esteem. You know, when you're wandering the street, nowhere to go, nobody to turn to. You know, um, that's a very very bad place to be. Um, and I I would have slept on people's couches, uh, couch surfing, and you know, staying in different people's houses. And if I if I had a load of drugs, that might buy me a few days in certain houses. And then you know, if I was after running out of drugs or money, you're screwed again. Type of thing. You know, so. Um, and they're using people that way. Um, then I would have slept in my mum's shed and people's garden sheds. I'd slept rough in my own neighbourhood, up in the basketball courts, and you know, just walking around. It's just, it's just a ship. It's just a precarity of it. You know, not knowing where you're going to be, or where you're going to sleep, or the hunger as well, being hungry as well, and thirsty, and these things that you don't really think about. You know, but because like as bad as it was and as hungry as you'll be if you found 50 euros you wouldn't buy food out of it like you know it would always be drugs um, and then I, it would be a matter of going into Cork Penny Dinners I used to go into here in Cork and get food um, I used to get food and uh, there's a bus a yellow Christian bus there on Pope's Key outside the church they do soup and sandwiches and biscuits at one o'clock as well I'd go in there um, and that was it really but it's not a nice thing no it's definitely not a nice thing but that the isolation I suppose of that um, was probably the worst part of it. Yeah, that loneliness and isolation, it's really something that kind of drives on the addiction as well, isn't it? Like kind of feeds it and kind of... Yeah. There's, a, there's, a, there's a good book there, um, Chasing the Scream and another one, Lost oh, yeah. Connections, but your man's name is Johan Harry, but he Johan talks Harry. about you know, um, addiction being primarily a result of losing the connection with other people, you know, and isolation. And I, I don't know, I think he was hitting the nail on the head there. The more stigmatizing, the more stigmatized you are, the more isolated you become, you know. Um, and I think the more isolated I became, the worse the addiction got. And so isolation is a big is a big thing. And even in recovery, um, I always have to be wary of the isolation, you know, um, kind of breaking away from friends. And I can be very comfortable in my own company, you know, and sometimes 
you have to just uh, be aware of that as well because you're not supposed to. We're social people. Yeah, we have this. Um, but I think I can be very comfortable on my own. Yeah, I, 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 that's a great book. Actually, Last Connections, I, I think it's a fantastic book for, for everybody to read, really. It's mainly around anxiety and depression, but that inherent need within us all to yeah. kind of connect with people is, uh, you know, from the moment we're born, really, it's, yeah. it's super, super important. Um, yeah. Like, uh, so when, when you came out then of Francis Farm, uh, you kind of got into Cork Simon and like wh- where did the kind of educational process start for you um, at that point, James? Yeah, well, when I, when I came out of the treatment centre, I went into the house plan for the Simon. Then I was after getting a, a mutual friend of ours, Fiona Hagenson. I got um, herself and uh, one of our colleagues, Jackie Foley, they got me a CE scheme working with the Simon, which was cleaning their administration building here in Cove Street in Cork. Uh, I was doing that for about for about a year, but I was thinking to myself, fuck it, like, like, you know, I want to do more than this, like, you know, this is grand and all, like, but I want to do more. Um, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. There's a cliche then in recovery, you know, recovery, you know, I want to be a fitness instructor, you know, and all the boys went, all the boys was doing that, you know. And I applied for two courses, but I didn't get. And I was like, oh, my God, I was like, for sure, I was going to get one of these courses. But you now everything happens for a reason. And I didn't get them. And I was looking for some direction in my life. And then I started dating this woman whom I later married. And she was like, do you know what? You're an intelligent man. There's brain there. You should use it. You know, it's not going to education. And I thought, you know, education, the college and stuff was for, you know, posh people. Definitely not for me anyway, you know. But uh, she gave me a bit of encouragement and I, I, I did a basic computer course through the assignment, a level three basic you now, like just to use a computer. Um, and the tutor at the time, his name was Paul, he died not long after. Uh, he, a young man with a young family died of cancer, but he was a gent and he really showed me that learning can be fun and learning is not the same as school, you know, because I had a bad experience in school and I left school thinking I was stupid. So I was put into the the stupid class and I got shitty grades because, you know, but I actually wasn't. And I went into the College of Commerce after that then, which is a, um, a further education college. Mm-hmm. And I did applied psychology and social studies. Um, and I, I got on great there. That was one year full time. Um, I then I done a three-year degree in youth and community work in UCC. Um, and that was great as well. And after that, then I started working in the Simon. And I remember one of my first days in there, I was in the landing, you know, um, doing whatever. And one of the residents came up to me, and I know whom I knew, and he says, Jesus, James, I heard you were doing well. And I was saying, I actually am, I'm working here. You know, but he thought I was after relapse and I was yeah, homeless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just showed me, like, that I'm not too far removed from them at all, do you know what I mean? And um, I, I loved working in there. Um, the connection I had with the lads, the empathy, and you know, they they were very open with me because they could understand um, that I, I was where they were, and you know, they, they would always come to me with queries about um, treatment center and how I got well and things I did and steps I took and all these things. You know, so I loved it. Um, after the bachelor's degree, I got I actually won a scholarship, um, an excellent scholarship, so I was able to do my masters for on a scholarship. I did a criminology master's, which I loved, and I'd encourage anybody to do it because it's great. The team over there are fantastic. It's just because I had a big interest in drug policy and recovery and crime. And uh, you know, I just always interested in understanding my myself, my behavior, 
my community and my city and why things are the way they are. Not so the criminology was perfect for me. Isn't that amazing, uh, though? Sorry, James, to cut across you. Isn't that amazing? Like you know, to have come where from where you had been and you got uh, this excellent reward. So you go on to do a master's in UCC, like you know, in criminology. I mean, it's just incredible. And it, like I, I think there's so many different reasons. Uh, like people don't have to be in addiction, you know, uh, for younger people not to be in the headspace sometimes for school and you know mm. for you know whether it's junior cert or leaving cert and you know there can be so many different things going on for people there and family issues and different social issues that people just aren't in the headspace for it at that point in time that there are so many different ways uh to kind of achieve things in life and to kind of there's so many different paths and so many different roads that uh, and I, I think there's so much inspiration in that for so many people out there like that, you know, even today are struggling, like, you know, and uh, for whatever is going on for them in their life. And, uh, you know, can, can you maybe touch on that a little bit, though, the, that kind of thing where you kind of have to make that switch in your mind to kind of make and, you know, look, maybe I need to make a change here and maybe I kind of need to kind of knock away these self-defeating belief systems that I have about myself and maybe my, my work and what I can do. Um, is that okay? Yeah, you, you, made a good, you made a good point there about like um, maybe if school didn't go great and then you're written off so you can't study afterwards. Like it's, to go back as a mature student is a beautiful thing because when you're back as a mature student, you've got a lived experience which is valuable to the college and the class um, also, you're, you you know what you want in life, you know, and you're after getting through the majors, a lot of distractions for students coming from school, you know, Rag Week, Freshers Week, this week, that week, party. <laughs> it's the weekend. <laughs> I, don't know, I, I don't know how they get through college. I tell you, know, I don't know how they manage to be looking at them like, and you know, you'd be under pressure as a student and not not using and drinking drugs and getting caught up in that, but but when you're, a, when you're a mature student, you're there because you want to be there. You have a goal and you're working towards that, you know. So I think, the, and also you have to get this into your head that, like, you don't, you're, you don't have to be a professor. You don't have to be, like, uh, straight A's or, like, you, you're in there to learn, get your qualification and move on. Simple as that, you know. There's plenty of sports, supports as well for mature students and for people from non-traditional backgrounds, as they said, you know. People like me in my from my locality and Desh school areas and stuff like that. So I'd encourage anybody to go back. And it's just about like trying something new. And you'd know like from um a lot of uh, growth that you can personal growth you can get is about taking a healthy risk, a calculated healthy risk, pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. What's the worst that can happen? You learn something new, meet new people, yeah. and the best that can happen, you find your niche, you find your career. And you set yourself up for life, you know. But there's there's actually no negatives. There's no negative outcomes of trying something new like that, a healthy risk. And I think throughout my recovery, it's always been taking a healthy risk, you know, pushing yourself out of your comfort zone and you know, just trying new things, meeting new people. And setting yourself these goals and these challenges. And you know, I, I went back myself as a mature student, and my head definitely wasn't in the headspace for school when I was there. But uh, you know, you can still set yourself these goals and you can achieve things. And you know, keeping it in the day as well, obviously, is, is, is very, very important. Um, what, what would be the maybe the advice you might give 
young people from, I suppose, you know, isn't it great you can reflect back and we can look at things. And But like, what, what advice would you give young people maybe that um, are struggling uh, with addiction or maybe even not struggling with addiction, but, you know, maybe having these negative uh, self, this negative self-image or negative self-talk that might go on for a lot of young people out there that they're not able to do these things. Like, what, 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 what maybe advice could you could you give those people? I just think that people can just reach out and if they're struggling, um, just to tell somebody that they trust. Um, that's that's it really. Once you if you keep it yourself, you're screwed. Like, um, you can you you know we 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 can turn molehills into mountains or whatever that saying is you know it's small thing when it's kept to yourself we can make it into a huge thing but when you relate to somebody that you trust you will get it a perspective on it you know um also it's about you know minding yourself especially during the pandemic and um, giving yourself a break if it means you eat more junk food or you play more xbox or you watch more netflix you're fine you're, you're grand just whatever happens you get through it you know and we'll all get through it um and it's about as well I suppose if, if 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 I was talking to somebody that's starting out their life now, maybe adulthood, just about you know going for it. Life is too short, you know. Yeah. You only get one shot at it, and if you're not happy in your job, fucking leave it and try something else. If you're not happy in your course, do something different, you know. Like don't settle for less than what you're worth, and you know it's just about being happy, and that's all it is. Like it doesn't matter if you're earning thirty grand a year or sixty grand a year or. If you're on the social welfare, if you're happy doing what you're doing, that's what we're aiming for. Yeah, there's, there's so much untapped potential in people that they never really realise unless they push themselves that little bit outside their comfort zone. Um, actually, yeah, I, I had a friend today, actually, I hadn't spoken to him in a, in a long time, really, but he had contacted me a couple of days ago saying he was going to treatment. And, you know, I was, I was really happy for him, but we, we'd kind of missed each other over and back a little bit. But I got a chance to talk to him this morning, but I was just saying, you know what, this is just a great step for him at this point in time to kind of, you know, it, it's something for him, I think, that would have had a lot of fear attached to it. Um, so yeah, um, James, like an incredible story, dude. Like you're working in for the ETB now, aren't you? Um, yeah, I work at the Cork ETB, and um, I have my own podcast as well, the Tonaries podcast, Tunaris, which, is, yeah, yeah. which is a great resource for people in recovery, especially mm-hmm. not just addiction, and not just drug addiction or alcohol as well. You know, eating disorders, gambling. Um, and just for people with a general interest in addiction and social issues, you know, and we've about 34 podcasts in at the moment. Um, we get about 15 to 20,000 people watch it every week on YouTube and Spotify and stuff like that. And it's growing and, you know, it takes up a lot of my free time, but um, it helps so many people as well. You know, so many people contacting us saying that, um, especially during lockdown, where traditional um, supports might be closed. Uh, so, yeah. Working with DTB and youth services, we uh, support the provision of youth work in Cork, and I, I love that job as well. And um, yeah, I'm busy out and do things like this as well, and guest lectures and podcasts and yeah, interviews yeah. and stuff like that. But I'm always fighting the fight and flying the flag for recovery and addiction and stuff like that. You know, that's fantastic. And people do definitely, if you haven't caught up with the lads' uh, podcast, they are really, really incredible. Uh, the two Naris, uh, uh, James, just. Just maybe might finish up now shortly, but just a little bit around what do you actually do for, you know, wellness now? And, you know, are you training? Do you do a bit of training? Are you kind of, um, you keep fit and stuff like what? 
sorry, but oh, <laughs> oh, very good. You got the bench press there in the room and some weights. <laughs> uh, I do weights, and weights is a big part of my recovery since day one. And okay, I always cool. loved lifting weights, even even in prison. And when I came into recovery, so um, I, I, I invested in the dumbbells and the curling bar on the bench and stuff um, just because of lockdown. So I just try to keep active. Good. I do walking. I have two dogs as well. The dogs are a big part of my recovery too. Yeah. They help, they help you. Like they're just, it's very hard to stay in a negative mindset when the dogs come over to you. You know, they're such a good, even for people with mental health issues, the dogs are great. Fab's um, companion, like, yeah. Uh, my wife is next to me here as well, so it's oh, great to have. Yeah, yeah. It's great to have such a supportive woman and uh, a wife that I love. That you know, we got married in two years ago now, um, and she's a great support to me. Um, so, and I do a bit of meditation. I do the podcast weekly. I surround myself with people in recovery. I cut the negative people out of my life, um, and that's yeah. It's just if you want new habits, um, you just have to surround yourself. In, in an environment no, if you want to gain new healthier habits you just have to create the environment to make it easier for you so yeah. it's not like my recovery is, is not a hard slog because my life is uh, structured in a way that makes it easy for me my, my, my job my wife my friends my podcast my training it's all very recovery friendly as opposed to um, as opposed to being surrounding yourself with people that are using or in a job you don't like or not looking after your physical health because it's all in. Yeah, I know 100%. I think actually my, my friend that I was talking about there earlier asked me one bit of advice, and I said, look, you know, you'll be fine when you're in there and you'll do a great treatment, but it's about cutting ties with people when you come out, and I think that's very important. As hard as it is and how difficult it is, sometimes it's, um, it, it, it is what needs to happen to kind of live a, a good, have a healthy recovery yeah. and kind of move on with your life, like, and give yourself yeah. the life that you deserve. James, very very inspirational so much hope there um and like yeah i think it's only the beginning dude and i think we're going to hear so so much about you over the coming years um and continued success with all of your endeavors uh and the podcasts are super uh i really like listening to them and thank you so so much for coming on i really really appreciate it, it was lovely talking to you um You're yeah and thanks a million buddy and sure look we might talk again sometime god bless i'd love to take care thanks jen